Well, thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you, Steve, for giving me a good illustration for the gospel. So, some, sometimes we get to that place in life where we feel as if we just have to start all over again. And it's all right to admit that, that we start all over again. And, uh, but what a beautiful song as we think uh, about and as we set our minds towards communion in, in uh, a little bit of time. Who's like our God? Who's like our God who comes to us and even faces death, death and a cross, such is his love. Well, I don't think they use this story in Alpha anymore, but uh, it's one of my favorite. There's a young police officer and he uh, is sitting his final exam at Hendon Police College in North London. And he was faced with this question. You're on patrol in outer London when an explosion occurs in a gas mains in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath and that there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your divisional inspector, who is at present away in the United States. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, but you realize that he is a man who's wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, another man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swing, swim. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. Well, the police officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> What, a, what an honest answer. The temptation of just mingling with the crowd. I think this is a real temptation for the church of Jesus Christ in this generation. Is that we just mingle with the crowd of culture round about us. And things that aren't the norm in the kingdom of God become the norm because of the cultural forces around us. And that tendency, that temptation to want to simply kind of take off our Christianity and just mingle with the crowd for an easier road, it's not really given to us as an option from the Scriptures if we're followers of Jesus. The temptation, because it's easier amidst the trials and the tests and the temptations we face, is for us to take on a kind of chameleon Christianity that we just kind of blend into what is around us in any particular moment. Chameleon Christianity feels like a real option. And I think in the book of James, as we start this series, is really a challenge not to do so. But in spite of the challenges, the temptations, the trials, the tests that come our way as the people of God to remain faithful to Christ, then there are things that we have to do that may make us stand out. And that may in itself generate its own tests and trials in our life. It won't be an easy route. You know, I think we live in some wonderfully contradictory times where I am both 
most optimistic about the openness of people to the gospel of Christ, I really believe that. I think the next 10 to 20 years is going to see an increase in openness to the message of Jesus. There's a spirituality and a spiritual openness, I think, that will emerge. But I think it will come in tandem with, in parallel with, an increasing sense of persecution for the followers of Jesus. Strange reality. Yet I think if you were to look throughout Scripture and throughout history, you would see the same. And in fact, the church of Jesus Christ seems to grow quickest and seems to have most openness in the places where there's persecution. But we have to remain faithful. And James really is a challenge to us to remain faithful in every trial and situation. And for us to grow, for us to grow as we face those trials, those tests. Actually, this is an opportunity for growth. And I don't know if you ever had this when you were younger, growing pains. Sometimes growth is painful. It, it takes its toll on us. But I think James is saying it's, this, is, this is good for us, even when we face trials and tests and temptations. It strengthens us. So let's read James chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it all joy or pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, we'll pause just there. Now, perseverance that's, that's a word. We, we would rather have things sorted quickly in our Amazon age where we just go and click and Amazon Prime delivers your solution, whatever it is. But James is saying, listen, perseverance is good. It, it will do something in our lives. It will accomplish its own work even when we're in the face of trials and testing and temptation, whatever that might look like. But I wanted just to pick out a few background thoughts about the time that James is writing, who he might be writing to, who James is, as we think about that. The author, James, probably most scholars, not all of them, but most scholars would reckon this is the half-brother of Jesus. That's certainly my uh, perception on it all, is that this is Jesus' half-brother, James. Paul, the apostle, certainly saw him as an apostle, but he was a leader in the church. And he calls himself, well, the New International Version calls, says he calls himself a servant. But actually, if, if you look at the, the text, the Greek text, really he says, I'm a slave. Now, that's not a word that we're particularly comfortable with in 21st century, century global realities because we, we're against slavery. We want to see the abolition of slavery. We, we don't want to see modern-day slavery. But the, there's a way in which James is using this is, is really important because it catches something of his devotion to God and what he is saying. He uses doulos, the word slave, because what he's saying is he is a voluntary slave to God. God has him. He's giving himself to God fully. 
Not that God has forced them into slavery, but that James is saying, I know that God and the Lord Jesus Christ knows what is best for me. Therefore, I am entrusting all of my life into his hands. And whatever direction he takes me in, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to be an obedient slave. A voluntary slave to God. I, for, for a number of years now, I've been looking to find Southern Hemisphere commentaries on all the books of the Bible. I want to get a different perspective. And what, is, what do we have to learn from the majority world church? Where the church is growing? And what are their scholars and, and commentators have to say? And I'm going to refer to... Uh, now, the last time I said this letter, I, everybody laughed at J or Jai. J, thank you, Carolyn. So you, we see J in Perth, but I say Jai in the East End. But J Ayodeja Adewuya is an African Nigerian scholar, and his, his work is, I've just found, so helpful, particularly in relation uh, to the book of James. But he tells us about the use of the word slave. It is a self effacing word that James applies to himself, a voluntary submission to the will of God no matter what. There is no hint of forced submission or coercion. Now you have to place this in the context of an African from whom the Western world made its fortune on slave trade, now owning a word and saying, but understand that this is a voluntary submission to God and to his will no matter what it costs us. It's not forced or coerced. It's a choice that we make. And when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, we say yes to the will of God, whatever trials and testings it might bring out. And it strips back and pulls down any social or economic categorizations or power status within the people of God because we're all called to be voluntary slaves and servants no matter who we are, no matter where we are in, the, in whatever order or hierarchy you might have made up or found in the world. In the church of Jesus Christ, we're all voluntary doulos following the will of God. There is no hierarchy. There's no rich or poor. There's no power and weak but the kingdom of God is a sign and an indicator that we are doulos of God. Voluntary slaves who live in obedience to the loving, generous, benevolent God. Well, let's read that a little bit more. From James 1 verses 9 to 11, I'm going to jump a little bit. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossom, its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, I'm not going to get into all of this here because James will pick it back up in, in subsequent chapters and we'll look at it at then. But enough to note that what James is trying to say is that in the kingdom of God, there is no division, rich or poor, weak or powerful. Neither is rich or poor a sign or an indicator of faith or no faith. 
But in fact, the way of the kingdom is a great leveler. When those who are high are brought down and those who are low are brought up. We choose to become slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and this is a letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, the diaspora, the dispersed ones. Not just Jewish Christians, but all who have been scattered across the nations for all kinds of reasons who are followers of Jesus. And in the places that they are scattered, they're living as outsiders, as aliens, as strangers, as different and as outcasts often. They've been dispersed from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and they've gone, they've in effect been refugees in other places. Just picking up that in uh, the coming weeks, we're likely to have uh, another hundred or so refugees come to our city in Perth. Our, our, our story as Christians, you know that, is re- refugees. That's, that's our history. You look at the Old Testament and the story of the Exodus, the people of God being delivered out of slavery, but, but being dispersed to another place. Or Jesus, after his birth, having to escape to Egypt. Our story is littered with the people of God being refugees, and therefore when somebody else, the stranger, the outcast, the one who doesn't belong here, comes here, we make them belong. Because that's who we are. That's our history. And of course, when they go to a strange place, the diaspora, the dispersed ones, they're met with suspicion and at times hostility. Not just how they looked or how they spoke, but what they believed and how they lived. Their values and lifestyle differ from those of the cities they inhabit. They're open to ridicule perhaps even physical or social abuse for their beliefs and practices. And therefore, they, they're called exiles. And exile is a place of loneliness, a place of non-belonging. And that's what the recipients of James' letters are like. We might use the word marginalized today. Persecution of some form becomes typical, producing trials and testings for the followers of Jesus and all those places dispersed. And I think sometimes that's going to be our reality. We'll feel like strangers in a strange land and we may have to face the persecution or a sense of being marginalized in a place that we used to, as the church, feel center stage. That's not the landscape anymore. And this was a challenge for the recipients of the letter of James. And therefore the question rises, do they just assimilate? Do they become chameleon followers of Jesus and just become like the dominant culture? Or do they persevere in their wholehearted submission to God to become slaves of Jesus Christ in spite of the trials and temptations around them? Or do they become hopeless and discouraged and overwhelmed by the trials and the temptations that they face? And all of that's the backdrop of the book of James. And in his opening chapter, he deals with these two possibilities then. In the face of such trials and temptations, will God's people persevere? And in persevering, will they grow in faith 
and strength and maturity. The thing about growth is it can be painful. But James says we've got to persevere and in that perseverance, let perseverance do its work that we might grow and become mature and strong. There is no quick Amazon Prime journey of faith with Jesus Christ. But over time as we persevere, he grows us and strengthens us and makes us mature in Christ. And then the second option was, if they don't do that, will they become double-minded, chameleon-like, which leads to an unstable, weak and wobbly faith, a weak and wobbly church. And James reminds us that the testing of our faith through trials of many kinds can be like healthy endurance training. Perseverance has its own impact on our strength. Now, I've never run a marathon. I'm not sure I'll ever run a marathon. I'm not sure there's anything within me that wants to run a marathon. I really should have, have been up here talking about running marathons or something like that. But in preparation for that marathon, endurance training, that perseverance of training, am I not right, Bane, builds up increase in strength so that when it comes to the day of the marathon, you are built up strong, mature, ready to run. But it takes time, perseverance, that endurance training. And James is saying to us as a church, in this generation, we need endurance training. In trials and testings, even in temptations. Don't give up. Keep on going. This is endurance training that comes our way. And James sees trials of many kinds, he says, as the terrain, the environment that we're in. But it's as we face them that we will grow up in our faith, personally and collectively as a church. So what does James mean by trials of every kind? Well, that that word trials that he used can mean two things. He can mean external forces that bring its trials and troubles and tests, its persecution, um, humiliation, struggle. It could be trials directly related to our faith, but it could also be external trials like financial challenges, loss, bereavement, illness, difficult relationships, disappointments in life, nothing's changing in life, too much is changing in life, changes in our family situation, breakups, loss of work, trauma, poor health, loss of confidence, external things that have happened in our life that come as trials and testings. When James uses that phrase, all kinds of trials, he includes all of that in it as well. Those external forces. And some of them are because of our faith. Some of, them fa- some of us face those trials because of our faith. And then his second thing is the internal conflicts, the trials that we face internally, the temptation, the enticement to sin. Let me jump to James 1, 13 to 15 for James' description of this. <clears throat> when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. As if somehow in our temptation we want to blame somebody else if we fall. Oh, it's somebody else. It's God's fault. It's the devil's fault. It's, it's somebody else's fault. 
No, it's not. We must take responsibility for our falling to temptation. Not blame others. God is te- uh, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. That internal conflict, entertaining the idea or the possibility of whatever it is, the temptation, entertaining it in the theater of our mind and our heart as it comes towards us, rather than us resisting it, we begin to entertain it. And it entices us in. Then after desire has conceived, James writes, in other words, as that desire grows and is formed in us, because we gave it oxygen. We gave it the theater of our minds and our hearts. It began to grow within us. Now, I think we should all be familiar with this because temptation comes to us on this inner conflict. And as it forms, it gives birth to sin. We act on it. And then sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death because there are real consequences, destructive consequences to sin in our lives. And so it's not just the external trials and testings, it's the internal temptations that may come from the outside, but we have to wrestle with on the inside. And not give it oxygen, not give it space in the theater of our minds, but to take every, cap, cap, every thought captive rather than giving it space to form and to full grow and to do its damage, even to give birth to death. Can you recognize that sequence towards sin, that internal conflict that responds to what is around and then we end up in its destruction? Friends, brothers, sisters, don't give up the battle against temptation and sin. Don't resign yourself to it as if it has to be in your life. Don't get comfy. Don't get comfy on the couch of complacency when it comes to sin because it will reap destruction and death in your life and in your relationships. Otherwise, we're given sin space to become full grown in our life. And James says, that's a killer. That's a killer. It gives birth to death. And whatever our trial is, those external factors or those internal conflicts, we're called to persevere in the face of them. They're a testing of our faith which produces perseverance, we become stronger as we persevere in those circumstances. You know, there are things in my life that I struggled with, secret sins, for years, even when I was married, that I had to wrestle with and battle with. But perseverance did its work in me. And over the years, its grip was loosened on me because I never took my eyes off the Jesus who said he'd deliver me. And thank God he did. And I never gave up. And sometimes we give up too soon 
to the complacency and comfort of just saying it's all right. It's not all right. It'll kill us. And it'll destroy our relationships. But perseverance does its work in the testing of our faith. And for every time I put my head down in a pillow and I cried out to God and every time I wrestled, God was doing something in my life. And he brought about his own deliverance. And faith was strengthened. Don't give up persevering. And it's probably worth noting that this testing of our faith is not a test to see if we have faith, but rather through which God refines faith. I want to just test these guys, see if they have faith. That's not what God is doing. He's refining faith as we face tests and as we persevere. The picture is more of a, a refining process, like silver or gold, which under pressure and under heat, the dross and the impurities and the rubbish rises to the surface and we're, we skim it off to leave the pure gold. That's what God is doing in this process of persevering. He wants to skim off the rubbish, the dross, the imperfections, the impurities, the character defects, the distance from God, the immaturity. And somehow we provide God the opportunity to skim that off as we persevere over time, keeping our eyes on him, persevering. So what are some of the ways we might persevere? Well, let's read James 1, 4 to 8. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. How do we persevere? Ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials. Lord God, what do I need to see? Lord God, what do I need to learn? Lord God, what do you need to show me? Lord God, what do you need to teach me? Rather than blaming other people, things, places, God, ask God, show me, give me wisdom. Teach me here. What must I learn? What do I need to see about myself? What do you need to remove? What do you need to do? I'm, I'm your doulos, Lord. I'm saying yes to your will. Show me, teach me, give me wisdom. Some of the wisdom that God gave me when I really had to wrestle out some of that secret battle was that I had to speak to my wife and talk to her about it. God sometimes gives us wisdom when we call out and when we're facing trials and temptations. We, Lord, show me what I need to do in the midst of this trial or temptation. Or for me, when I was, when I was ill, when I was diagnosed with cancer, and, and we were calling out to the Lord, and we said, Lord, we don't even know what to do. And he gave us the most bizarre wisdom, but my goodness, it, it held us the whole way through. He led us to the passage in Philippians chapter 4. 
In the midst of a cancer diagnosis, stage three for a 41-year-old, he said this, Ian, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And my goodness, those verses of Scripture held us through the whole testing. Thanks be to God. Ask for wisdom. Don't become complacent. Ask for wisdom. Keep the eye on the goal, the reward, Jesus, and ask for wisdom. And we discovered that in that journey of cancer, everything is gift. Everything. I have today. That's what I learned through cancer. I have today. You have today. I used to think I had every day. I have this moment. That's it. That's the reality. That's coming to me as a gift, a wisdom from God. So I live today as if it's the gift of today. Do it without doubting. Ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials and do it without doubting. With determination, focus on that end point. You know, it's like a, I've, I've, I've never plowed a field, but I, I have had to, to do the drive-on tractor thing, the drive-on lawnmower. And I've discovered if I look behind, I go all over the place. If anyone else has ever had a shot of that. But, uh, um, but when we keep our eyes fixed, I am not doubting. All the way through my testing, I'm holding on to God. I am not doubting. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep listening. And when I keep in that direction, if I start to look behind me, if I start to look all around me, I'm wobbling all over the place. But I will not doubt. I'm going to keep going to him. And I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep trusting. Eyes focused. Everything else will distract. Otherwise, as the verses here say, you'll be blown and tossed around by every prevailing wind and wave of this age. And there's loads of them. Eyes front. Focused on Jesus. Don't doubt. Keep persevering. Thirdly, remember who God is and who you are. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Remember who God is and who you are. The God who gives generously to all without finding fault. I mean, isn't that good news? Ask from the God who isn't just sitting alone looking to find fault with you or me. Or asking is not somehow conditioned by the fact that we have all these faults. Sometimes we discount ourselves. I think this is what I meant earlier on when I was talking about the fact that some of us have got our place into a place of despair and discouragement and defeat. Uh, because we, we see our own fault or faults and we've kind of resigned ourselves to that reality. No, no don't do that. God gives without finding fault on us. We just got to keep believing and asking and trusting and persevering and not doubting and holding on. Don't stop asking. Persevere. 
Remember who God is who gives generously to all without finding, finding fault. God's not like us. In coming to ask perhaps day after day of him, he welcomes the opportunity to give wisdom, gems for the journey that will strengthen us. And remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. If you're feeling defeated this morning with despair, I want to break that off in the name of Jesus. Remember who you are, son or daughter of God. Remember who you are in Christ. Don't accept defeat. Don't accept despair. Don't accept discouragement. Whatever the testing is in your life, whatever the trial, the tribulation, or the temptation, let's persevere. Let's encourage each other. Let's build each other up. Remember who you are, people of God. Remember your sons and daughters of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Remember who you are. You're not defeated. And so I want to finish, almost finish, on a, a reading um, from Ayodeji Adewuya. This little story is called How, Why Can I Sing? Moro Naba, a Mossi emperor in Burkina Faso, had conquered a powerful ethnic group in the south called the Casina. He extracted tribute from them once each year. One year at tribute collecting time, the emperor made the mistake of sending his son, Nabiga, a prince, and his heir apparent. When the Casina saw him with only a very small entourage of guardians, they overpowered the group and took the prince hostage. His kingly robes were stripped from him and he was forced to walk around in only a loincloth. The prisoner received only one meal a day and was forced out into the fields each morning to hoe. Normally manual labor would be beneath the dignity of a royal heir, so the casino made great sport of him. The woman would pass by and belittle his manhood. While he was hoeing in the fields, the children would throw pebbles and stones at him. But to the surprise of all those watching from day to day, the Mosai prince would work and sing. He sang cheerfully with a loud voice as his back bent to the hoe from sun up to sundown. At first his soft hands blistered and then bled as he was unaccustomed to using a hoe. He lost much weight but continued to be cheerful and to sing. The elders of the casino were much troubled by his singing and buoyant attitude. How can he possibly sing, they would ask, since we make him sleep on the ground? We give him very little food and he's forced to work. Our women and children mock him, but he still sings. After a month of watching, they finally called him before a council. He stood in his loincloth, straight and proud in their midst. The elder spokesperson for the Casina people asked the Mosai prince about his behavior. Why do you sing? Nagbiga answered, It is true. You have taken away my fine clothes. You have made me work. You gave me very little food and you make me sleep on the ground in a common hut. You've tried to take away all my pride and all my earthly possessions. You've brought me great shame. Now you ask me why in spite of all of this I can sing? I sing because you cannot take away my title and who I am. I am Mora Naba's first son and need not react to your shameful behavior or attack. What kept him going? 
It was his sense of identity, of who he was. Friends, do you have a sense of your identity, who you really are? Sons and daughters of the living God in Christ Jesus, that is who we are. So let's not settle for discouragement or despair or defeat. But let's understand that perseverance will do its own work to strengthen us. It's not time to give up. It's time to get going and to keep going. Whatever comes our way, individually, personally, or together. So ask God for wisdom. Do it without doubting. Remember who God is and who you are. And keep your eye on the prize. With this, I finish. James 1.12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that's a crown for now, not just for eternity. It's for eternity as well. But that crown that God wants you to rise up and into. Don't be defeated. But persevere and receive the blessing and the crown of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you come and join us? Thank you.